Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author, and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. This episode is a replay of a conversation I had back in 2019 with Emily Wojcik, who is still currently the managing editor of the Massachusetts Review. This was during the year of the publication's 60th anniversary, and the Massachusetts Review is a literary magazine that promotes social justice and equality along with great art. They are committed to aesthetic excellence as well as public engagement, and the Mass Review publishes literature and art that provokes debate, inspires action, and expands our understanding of the world around us. Listen to learn one surprising trick to get your work read more quickly by Mass Review, a trick that I believe still holds up a couple of years after this interview, so long as I'm reading between the lines of their submissions guidelines correctly, and listen for welcome inspiration to trust your writing. Welcome, Emily Wojcik. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> glad to be here. <laughs> Yay. Um, so before joining Mass Review, you were with Paris Press. Can you tell me a bit about your small press slash lip mag love? Is there a place that you either fell in love with when you published there or first got involved with? Sure. So um, I was one of those kids who was always determined to be in, you know, be an English major and, and read. And if I could figure out a way to do it, get paid to read. Um, my dad taught me to read when I was three. And, and so that was a really big part of my life for a long time. And I had um, gone off to New York to be in magazines after I graduated from college, which was fantastic. I had great mentorship, but, um, but it paid almost literally nothing. And it's very hard to live in Manhattan when you're making nothing. And so <laughs> um, when my office got downsized, I moved to Massachusetts and decided I would go to graduate school, mostly just thinking that that would help pay the bills while I figured out what I wanted to do. And, um, and I ended up interning at Paris Press at first, um, which was this very small nonprofit feminist press up in Western Mass. And it was fantastic. It ended up, because it was so small, um, I learned how to do pretty much everything um, from fundraising and grant writing to typesetting. I mean, on the computer, of course, not, not setting type directly to basic editorial and proofing. Um, we were, I was helping select texts and, um, and that was really where I got a sense of both how I could make a living or at least have a life where I was reading and working with texts all the time. And also just how, complicated and interesting the nonprofit version of that could be because anyone who works in a nonprofit knows that you have incredibly small staffs um, and you do everything you have to do and you sort of fly by the seat of your pants because um, everything depends a bit on funding and a bit on sales and and it just I don't know I found it really exciting in a way that writing about lipstick in New York hadn't been exciting <laughs> if that makes sense <laughs> yeah <laughs> And there's so much creativity that happens in nonprofits too, because the resources are so small. Absolutely. I mean, I like to say I tend to work at places that are too small to fail. You know, I've, I've gotten really good at over there. Gosh, I've been doing this now for 
16 years and um i've gotten really good at figuring out where we can just you just keep paring it down and paring it down if you have to and you know whatever it takes to keep the platform alive um whether it's a press or a small magazine and that's also i mean that takes creativity it takes energy it's it's never boring and so that was kind of that was where i really cut my teeth i was working with um jan freeman was the executive director and she was one of those women who prior to me joining she had had a couple of interns but it was essentially a one woman show so it was just a really good she was a great role model for that you know both in terms of how to get things done and how to multitask and also you know a little bit on how to how to be just crazy enough to want to do this all the time <laughs> which i think is another important part of it for sure <laughs> a little love crazy let's say exactly um, so I know I want to talk to you about creative nonfiction because some, something I read in another interview you did struck me as something that I also hear a lot from other lit mags that you're always looking for nonfiction. There's a dearth of nonfiction, or at least that was the case in that interview in 2015. Is that still the case? And even in these heydays of memoir? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I feel like I want to be careful how I answer this question. The short answer is yes. Um, and the longer answer is, I think, in part because we're in a heyday of memoir. I think, you know, I've read really wonderful memoirs, but that's, we as a magazine, we don't really publish personal memoir that doesn't in some way engage the broader world. And what I mean by that is, um, for example, in our current issue, our summer 2019 issue, we have this really amazing essay by a woman named Mimi Lipson and it's, it starts off being about her brother and her brother was bipolar and would often, when he was in a terrible place, he would take himself hiking for days at a time all by himself out in the woods. And in the course of one of these hikes, uh, which is triggered by the fact that he's having trouble with his neighbors upstairs. Um, he lives in a house that his mother is the landlord of, and a building that his mother is the landlord of. And the neighbors upstairs are giving him a lot of grief and trouble and causing a lot of noise. So he takes himself off. And in the course of this height, um, a freak tornado goes through and he gets, he gets felled by a tree and, and ultimately rescued and all of that. But in the course of this, you know, it starts off being about family trouble and mental illness. And then you begin to learn through the course of the essay that the neighbors upstairs are the Sarnayev brothers um, from the Boston Marathon bombing. And that this author's mother was their landlord in Boston. And it becomes this kind of really intricately woven meditation on mental illness and family, but also the idea of, of do we really know our neighbors and uh, what are the effects of these people on you know both good and bad on, on the greater world and, and the ways we interact with people. And it becomes this really big essay in a really economical space. And that's the sort of nonfiction that we tend to look for. My boss puts it as, um, you know, we're more interested in the world than the self. And we often, you know, when we get memoir, it's often really well-written, but, you know, it's, it's so specific and it's so small. The charming and, and adorable story about a man learning to cook dinner for his family because his wife got a job you know, and that sort of thing where it's, it doesn't feel like it's saying much beyond the family. And that's hard for us to figure out how that's going to work for our, our type of reader who's looking for a broader, more international, more politically engaged um, form of nonfiction. 
Yeah, I love that expression. We're more interested in the world than the self. And one of the things, though, that strikes me in, in your example is like, her brother has mental health problems and was stuck in a tor- like there's a tornado. There's sort of a bigger, I guess, issues of brown mental health happening. And then also this insertion into a, a news story and, and a tragedy. I'm wondering, do you think there's room for the type of creative nonfiction that is maybe is about that dinner, but is there a way, to, I guess, to connect that dinner, you know, cooking dinner for your family to the larger issues? Or have you seen that happen before, I guess? Absolutely. And in fact, you know, I, I say, you know, we tend to shy away from memoir. And then, of course, all of the examples I'm coming up with begin with memoir. So, <laughs> so take that with a grain of salt. Um, but yeah, no, uh, for example, um, a couple of years ago, again, in our summer issue, I don't know what it is about our summer issues, but a couple of years ago, we had a, an, an essay by a woman named Siobhan Phillips, who, in any case, she begins writing about, you know, being raised vegetarian and macrobiotic by her mother in the seventies. And then she goes gluten-free because she has health problems. And then she starts doing this elimination diet and it very rapidly for her turns into disordered eating. And from there, she jumps into really kind of thinking about disordered eating in today's wellness world and today's where it's so easy to hide disordered eating behind, oh no, I just don't eat dairy because you know, I, I, I have a sensitivity or I don't eat this because I have a sensitivity. And, and I say this as somebody who doesn't eat things with a sensitivity, but, <laughs> but just the small jump from wellness and being healthy to having a full-blown eating disorder. Um, in the essay, she talks to a few experts on disordered eating. She talks to some wellness experts and it becomes this, again, a kind of bigger exploration. So I think that's that's ultimately what we look for is, you know, something personal that grounds the essay, that, that gives our readers something to connect to with the writer, but then that pushes that beyond just the writer's personal experience into something that seems to have an impact for the reader. Right. So I don't really care that this woman was macrobiotic as a child, but I find it fascinating that in our current, you know, dialogue about wellness, there's this kind of shadowy other side where for some people wellness turns into a real health problem. Yeah, that's a great way to make it really concrete for us. So yeah, you talked about some of the common problems with CNF submissions that you're getting. So that's great to hear for people who are writing more memoir and not connecting it to bigger things. Maybe there's another journal for your work or another way to tackle that topic and think about the ways that it can connect to bigger stories. And there are, I mean, there are fantastic journals out there that publish lots of memoir. I mean, I, I personally, I, you know, I like memoir, I think, um, and I like small stories. Um, I just, I think for the magazine, you know, our magazine has a a certain kind of mandate is probably too big a word. It it has a vision, right? Mm -hmm. We have, um, an idea of, you know, we tend to be a little bit more on the political side, a little bit more on the social justice side. We try to engage international issues. And I, I know there are journals for whom the scope really is, um, you know, more about the personal and the individual. And, and I think that's, you know, that's what, as my grandmother would say, that's what makes horse races, right? It's good to have journals that do everything. <laughs> Just hitting pause on the replay of my conversation with Emily Wojcik to talk about the Mum Egg Review. Mum Egg Review is a lit mag open for submissions of poetry, fiction, creative prose, and art for an issue themed Mother Figures. They seek work that engages with archetypes of mother in history, religion, pop culture, TV shows and movies, mythologies, fairy tales, 
and more, and their submissions close on July 15th. You can find information about Mum Egg Review and their submission guidelines at mumeggreview.com slash submit. So I want to talk to you about endings because as as I mentioned, I was reading some interviews that you've done previously and and found this interesting idea that you're expressing about how you had to cut the last two paragraphs of a lot of stories and that it's such common advice that you give writers that it becomes something of a joke around the office. And too often a writer will keep going, overstating, I'm quoting you here, or restating the moment to the story's detriment. So can you talk about why you think that is and what writers might do to find and avoid this in their writing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... So we see a lot of work by very established writers and we see a lot of work by emerging writers. And I think where we see that problem is generally in the more emerging writers. We see actually on both ends of the story, we we have um, a similar kind of joke about, you know, we like it, but can we cut the first page? You know, and then we like it, but can we cut the last two paragraphs? I think in both cases, what you have is maybe a bit of nerves, um, a bit of writer's uncertainty. When we want to cut the first page, it's often because a writer just, I, I envision it as they're doing the kind of Fred Flintstone, their feet are, are running, but they're not moving yet. <laughs> like Just kind of getting up the head of steam to really start the story. And I think with the ending, it's often a, an uncertainty that the writer might have that they haven't done their job well. I don't want to put, I don't want to, put feelings or thoughts into other people's heads. But I always wonder if it's a bit of the moment where they sort of second guess themselves. And so we'll, we'll have read this really wonderful story. It will have this really powerful image that it ends on. And then suddenly there'll be, you know, um, the sort of wonder years voiceover moment where it's like, and that's where I learned that, you know, I didn't need this after all, or, and let me remind you that I was dating this guy at the beginning of the story and everything worked out with him too. And it's like, that's not the story. The story ended here and, and just trust it. Trust that the reader came with you. Trust that you did a good job and, and that you brought us there. And if the reader still has questions, that's, that's okay. It's a short story. You know, it's not a novel. You're not, you don't have to tie up every loose end. You just have to make sure that the story resolves in a way that feels complete right? That feels um, satisfying. And if there's a loose end, that's okay. Trust that the reader is okay with that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's almost like defining what satisfying means. <laughs> so exactly. I'm never going to forget that image of Fred Flintstone running as being that, because <laughs> it's so often it's true the case with openings for, for pieces that there is what one of my earlier mentors, Betsy Worling calls scaffolding, the kind mm-hmm. of holding the building in place. And then you can you know, you can remove the scaffolding once the building's done. And I know it's off, you know, it's often the case with poems, especially that the beginning has that problem where you need to lop off the first one or two stanzas. And to me, it is almost a joke myself too, where I'm, if I'm working with a, with a poet, it's so common that I'll say, what what have we started here? A couple stanzas later, (laughs) you know, how's that going to change the poem or, or, you know, was this writing really for, for you to get into it or was the writing for the reader? So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how do you approach editing poetry versus prose at Massachusetts Review? Well, I'm I'm lucky because I end up not editing a lot of poetry myself. But our poetry editors, um, Ellen Dora Watson and Deborah Gorlin, you know, they're our senior poetry editors, and they are super hands on. They do all of um, they read all of the submissions. They don't have assistants reading. They don't have interns reading for them. And they interact with the poets. They do a lot more editorial work, in fact, than, than the prose folks do. 
uh, and I'm often CC'd on these emails. So it'll often be, you know, we like this poem very much. This for this stanza we think is extraneous or more often actually what ends up happening is, you know, I don't understand this image. This image doesn't work with the rest of the poem. You know, would you think about altering it or, or changing it? Or would you tell us, you know, a little bit more about what you were thinking? Because I think it's really, you know, Ellen especially, well, Ellen and Deb both have a lot of experience teaching writing and teaching poetry. Um, Ellen taught poetry at Smith, still does, and was the director of the Poetry Center there for 25 years. And um, Deb taught poetry, teaches poetry at Hampshire, but she, I think, just retired this year. So, you know, they have a lot of experience working with people to try to make their poetry better. And I think that that really comes into play. So it's it's a lot of questioning. It's a lot of, um, you know, rather than saying, oh, you need to do this, I think it's they do a lot more you know, what would you think of this or this isn't working for us? And so if you're willing to revisit it, you know, and maybe if you want some suggestions, we we can offer them. But for all of us, I think editing pieces, we try to leave it as much as possible in the writer's lap. You know, we try to give direction a bit, but if it's the kind of piece, especially if we haven't solicited it, if it's the kind of piece that's going to need a real overhaul, we'll generally go back to the writer and say, look, here's what we like about it. Here's where we think it's it's wanting to go, but it's not there yet. So, you know, come back to us when you've reworked it. Our executive editor, Jim Hicks, will often, if he, if it's a piece that he really wants to see redone or reworked, he'll send extensive notes. He'll send, you know, a page or two of, this is what I'm thinking. This is what isn't working. Here's where I think your piece is trying to go. Do you have any interest in trying to, to rework it? And, you know, sometimes people say yes, and sometimes they say no, and that's fine. <laughs> Well, what you said about um, creative fiction is something I hear very often from editors. What you're saying about the way that you approach poetry is is unique and such a great opportunity for poets, I think. Often what I'm hearing from Lit Mags is that they're just publishing poems as is. So mm-hmm. such a, a treat, it seems to me, for a poet to be able to submit there and to have someone help them bring a piece home and question some of those images maybe that are detracting from the piece. That's a great yeah, and I know Ellen and Deb really like to publish poets who who are fairly new. Um, you know, we we always have a couple of of bigger names, um, which I I think philosophically is what we try to do with the whole magazine is publish you know emerging writers alongside more established names. But I think you know, particularly with the poetry, I, th- I know Deb and Ellen are always really interested in seeing you know what's happening with newer poets and. You know, if, if you're a new poet, if if you're if you've not been published before, you might need a little bit a little bit more guidance. You know, and then sometimes we get people who <laughs> are perhaps beyond help. We did get one. I didn't read the poems, but we got one cover letter from someone telling us that we should publish his work because um, we will be happy in the future to be able to say that we were the first people to publish him. And that <laughs> his ultimate goal was was to be published by the Paris Review, but he really saw us as an important stepping stone to that. So, you know, there are some folks who I think, like, I, I, I can't speak to the quality of his poetry. We may have lost a really brilliant poet, but, but we may not have, so. <laughs> yeah, well, that leads me to ask you a bit about the cover letter and how, you know, how it can detract really from submissions, but being an extreme example of it. Do you get um, a lot of cover letters maybe where writers will try to explain the piece to you a bit before before you get into it? And what do you think about that? Yeah, we do, actually. Um, we get 
for the most part, our cover letters that we get are pretty straightforward. And that's, I appreciate that, you know, like, here's who I am. Here's what I'm submitting. If I've been published before, here's where I've been published. But every, especially with the pros, we'll often get people sort of providing a summary. And, you know, on the one hand, I've said this before, but, you know, we're going to read the piece no matter what, right? It, the cover letter doesn't have to, doesn't have to convince us to read the piece because it's been submitted to us. So we'll read it. That's the deal we've made. But at the same time, you know, it is kind of helpful when we get a a summary because it is kind of, I can look at it and say, oh, okay, this is likely not going to be something that we're going to take, or this is likely something I want to pass on even before I go in. I will say it works less well for fiction. I think people are not particularly good at summarizing their own fiction. And I think people default to a sort of marketing language about their fiction and, you know, this is the heartbreaking story of such and such. And it's like Hunger Games meets Emma or something, you know, just like, I don't, I don't know what that means. But for nonfiction, it can be helpful, right? So this is an analysis of this, or, you know, we'll sometimes get things that are too scholarly and, you know, or we'll get things that are kind of silly or whatever. And it's useful to kind of know, oh, okay, this is going to be this kind of piece. But yeah, I mean, it's not required. And and I think, you know, there's there is such a thing as as potentially casting your piece in a bad light. I mean, I think one of the joys of reading is to discover something on your own. And, you know, I'm, I'm not one of those people who reads the back cover of a book before I read the book. I tend to just kind of pick it up and go. So I, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't say it detracts, but I wouldn't say it helps. Yeah. Maybe approach it in a first do no harm to your submission kind of exactly. way when you're writing the cover exactly. letter. Well, and again, trust your, trust your writing, right? I mean, this is the big thing I find over and over again, especially with less experienced writers is trust your writing, trust that you're going to be able to get through it. And if you can't, if it, if the story doesn't do that, then the cover letter is not going to help. Right. But trust that, you know, you don't need to set up, you don't need to set me up. If you've done, if you've done a decent job, I'll, I'll get into it. I'll get it. I think, you know, people get nervous and they really want um, they really want it to be published. And I totally respect that. And so they think, well, maybe this will help. And, eh, you know, basically it just comes down to how good is the piece. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, you're going to read it anyway, so you don't need to persuade. Exactly. It's like almost maybe just not knowing where you are in terms of your publishing journey. Like there's a time when you do have to sell it and that's at the the publisher agent level, but not at the lit mag level. Exactly. Exactly. Like we're, we're going to read everything, you know, we won't take everything, but we're going to read everything. And, but yeah, it is, I think that is the kind of the confusion that happens and, and we're a marketing world right now. I mean, gosh, everything is, what's your elevator pitch? <laughs> I, I end up thinking if you can summarize your story in a sentence and a half, then it probably didn't need to get written. You know, I mean, certainly didn't need 25 pages. And so it's like, if you can't summarize your story, that's okay. That's that's good. I can hear writers sighing a breath of relief even at hearing that. It's coming across here. And and I read in another interview, and I don't want to disparage the interviewer, but they were trying to get you to say what irritated you about some of the, you know, common flaws in stories, like too much exposition, flat language, redundancy or repetition. And I just love that in your response, you resisted that characterization and just saw it as a writer learning. So what do you see your role as teacher slash mentor for writers and submitting to the journal is and, and how's mentorship worked for you in your own writing life? That's a, that's a good question. Um, when we work with writers, um, you know, I kind of, I see my job and this is kind of overall, I see my job as editor is to make, to make the piece that the writer intended 
accessible to the reader. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, I try to get a sense of what the writer is trying to do. And I, you know, if I edit it, I'm editing it for clarity and to make sure that, that the voice gets heard. You know, I'm not interested in changing how somebody writes. I'm not interested in making the story something it's not, you know, I may suggest some grammar. I might suggest some, some reworking um, to make it a little bit more clear or to make it a little bit more in keeping with what I think the authorial intent is. But I, I also, I, I like to have a, a bit of a light hand. That said, you know, if it's a piece that really needs a lot of work, you know, we often won't take it um, because we're just such a small office. Um, I'm the only full-time paid staff member at the office. Two of our senior editors receive course releases from their universities to do to do the editorial work. But um, otherwise, you know, we have two people full-time in the office, um, one of whom is mostly volunteer. And then we have interns. And so there's just a whole lot that has to get done. And so we're not able to do as much mentorship as, as, as we'd like. That said, you know, I've really valued when I work with people who've helped my writing, you know, you've, I think every writer has worked with somebody who doesn't get it, who, who wants the story to be a different story or wants the essay to be a different essay. And I try really, really hard to not be that editor. I try really hard to figure out what is, what is the writer trying to do? Where are they falling down? And that's, that's where the little tiny annoyances, I guess, as the other person was framing it, um, come in, right? If you've got 12 adjectives and two sentences, it's distracting, right? No one's gonna, no one's gonna pay attention to the sentence because they're just gonna look at the fact that you have all these adjectives and it's a thin line between um, descriptive and, and ridiculous, right? And, and so, um, you know, coming at it from that angle, um, why is everything an adverb? Do we, do we really need all of these adverbs? Or is that distracting the reader from what's really happening? You know, again, the same with redundancy, the same with repetition. I think, you know, it's, all, it's always kind of from a point of view of like, is this serving the story? And if it's not, can we cut it? Because there's something here and it's just, it's got a little bit of muck on it. And if I can just clear away that muck, it's going to shine. That's how I try to approach editing and mentorship. Yeah, I love what you say about not imposing the view, like your your view as an editor on the piece and just seeing what what's there and what the writer's intention is. Because even if they're falling totally flat, there's always something that you can say as an editor, I think, to help them take a step toward that vision that they have for their piece. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out, I was reading some writer, I can't remember now, and, and he was saying that he um, he got his start by retyping Ernest Hemingway stories and, um, and just to get a sense of what Hemingway wrote like. And, and I think we see that sometimes in writers, you know, they, they see somebody, they've read somebody that they're really inspired by and they, they go off trying to do that same kind of style and that idea of like, okay, so what is it that you've liked about this story? What is it? Do you like that the narrator isn't named? Do you like that there's an, you know, you know, an unfinished ending is, you know, what is it that you're, that you're trying to get at and where are you getting in your own way? Where are you overdoing it or where are you not doing it enough, right? Where are you sort of lacking the courage of your convictions <laughs> and just trying to kind of get into the story that way? Um, it's a different kind of reading than I think most of our readers do because they're not paid to do the reading <laughs> the way I am. But it's, it's, 
fun. I would imagine also, just because this is true for me, so educational about writing in general to be able to identify and read in that in that way where you're, like you said, getting paid to do it and looking really closely at what's working and what's not working. Absolutely. Well, and we have interns. We have interns from the UMass MFA program during the school year. And then in the summers, we have undergraduate interns and all of them, I put them to work. I mean, they don't necessarily do um, rejections and stuff, but I put them to work reading our slush pile because it's, I think it's such a good education, you know, just start reading these things and you'll see after you read 10 or 15 submissions, you're going to see writers doing the exact same problem every time, you know, like 12 different writers making the same mistake. You know, you're going to see the same kind of imagery. You're going to learn really quickly what's a cliche. Because you may not have thought that, but when you see it 12 times in two hours, you're going to realize, oh, that's totally cliche. I think that's really helpful. I think um, just to kind of get a sense of what people... I often tell people, you know, we don't get a lot of really bad writing. We, we you know, like the people who submit to us, I can count on one hand, maybe the, the pieces that made me just kind of laugh out loud and think, oh gosh, no. But what we get a lot of is, you know, writing that just needs a little more work you know, it's almost there. And so learning to distinguish between like what's really good and sharp and ready to go and what's not quite there yet, you know, it's perfectly fine, but we want better than fine. We want it to shine. And so just learning how to distinguish that, you know, learning, you know, sitting there thinking, this is good. And it's like, is it like, are readers going to keep going with it? Or are they going to give up after two pages? Cause they don't have to read it, right? We do, but they don't. (laughs) For sure. Would you say that or what would you say is, has been the most rewarding part about working with contributors to the Massachusetts Review? Oh my gosh. I just, I'm, I'm stunned by how brilliant our contributors are. Like, you know, and, and we get people, we're actually um, trying to put together, it's our 60th year this year, 2019 is uh, MR's 60th birthday. And we're working with uh, some writers who we we were their first or one of their first publications. And now they've been doing more stuff. And so we've gone back to them back and asked them. them, who should we be looking at now? Who's, who's new and, and emerging that they know about that maybe no one else does. And who should we be uh, soliciting for work? And it's just so much fun to go back to them because they're so brilliant. <laughs> like the fiction is brilliant. Poetry is brilliant. This is my problem, right? I don't like adjectives. So I, I'm now, I don't have any adjectives to describe them. <laughs> <laughs> But it's just, I think when you work with someone, when you find somebody's piece that, that that just kind of takes the top of your head off, right? To quote Emily Dickinson, it's just, we have a couple of writers. We have uh, one writer, Alison Cade. She's in New York. Um, we published an early story of hers a couple of years ago that was this really interesting kind of dystopian near future idea of New York post a Superstorm Sandy kind of situation that just destroys the city the writing wasn't quite, it wasn't quite English. It was this kind of modified colloquial. I, it was just, it was so interesting on every level and it worked on every level. And it was just like, how does this woman not have novels yet? Like, how does, <laughs> how has she not been discovered? We have a couple of writers, like, I mean, we have many, many writers like that, where we just, you read something, you're like, this is a perfect story. Like, I don't, it's such a pleasure to discover that this is a perfect poem. Um, this writer is doing something so interesting with, with the nonfiction, you know, just like, Oh my God, I never thought about that. That's so interesting. (laughs) I've often said one of my flaws is I get bored really easily. 
you know, I, I grew up in one of those households where I was told, oh, you know, the only boring, you're only bored if you're boring. And I, I get bored all the time. So I don't know what that says about me. But when you, when you've got these contributors, I just, I don't get bored with this. I, every single issue I think is really good. And I don't, haven't worked at any other job where that's been true, where I've, you know, looked at every single issue and thought, people need to read this. Like they need to read this because it's so goddamn good. Excuse my language. So good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's fabulous. It's just your love for, you know, the the submitters and and lit mags really comes through. So I love, I love hearing that given the theme of the show. And so I know we talked before we started and you were saying that you have about 750 submissions in slush, but I'm still going to ask you, what is the best way for writers to connect with you and with Massachusetts Review? Well, I hasten to say that 750 left. So we started with like 2000. So we're doing okay. The best way, honestly, if they want to be read more quickly, I hate to say this um, because everyone's online, but we have two modes of submission. We um, we accept submissions through our online submission manager, which you can get through to through our website. There's a $3 fee for submissions, or we accept snail mailed submissions, which we don't charge a fee for. And I think because of the way it works, I think folks who snail mail, they get read sooner. Um, that's just because we have a couple of senior readers, senior, um, fiction editors who only read paper, who don't want to read online. So, you know, they will pick up the stuff and read it and get it back to us much more quickly. Um, when it's online, you know, you're kind of at the whim of we're a tiny office and we do the best we can, but tiny office with only a couple of editors. And so it can take a while. Um, we usually, we say on our website, it can take us up to six months to respond. It's taking us actually a little bit longer this year because um, one of our senior editors uh, is having trouble at work. And so she's, she's been more absent, you know, and that's, that's just kind of the function of being a small, tightly funded nonprofit organization is we're operating with really lean resources. And, and so, yeah. So I think if time is of the essence, I would recommend probably mailing it in. I love that. That's like a hot tip for our listeners here. (laughs) (laughs) We'd never have guessed. Yeah. I mean, you know, that said, who knows, you know, this could all shift next year. We can get our, we can get our act together. And, uh, and we do, we do allow, we do encourage simultaneous submission because of that, because we're so small, because it takes us so long to respond. So we're certainly not going to say we should exclusively have this until we make a decision because that would be cruel. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, talking with me today and sharing your Lit Mag love with me and our listeners. Okay. No problem. This was really fun. Thanks so much. So that was my conversation with Emily Wojcik, the managing editor of the Massachusetts Review. Among the enduring things to note about the Mass Review is they are more interested in the world than the self. They will publish creative nonfiction that might classify as memoir, as in stories that come from an inside view of your life and perspective, so long as the writing also faces the world, connecting to bigger issues and themes. And ever since we recorded this interview, I have had that image of Fred Flintstone starting his car with feet running but not moving yet in mind when I think of stories that open with text that doesn't go anywhere yet. That's another another enduring moment. I also continue to appreciate how she talked about endings and how they seek stories that resolve in a way that feels complete and satisfying, but that also trusts that the reader is okay. 
I'm grateful for her insight that trusting the reader requires trusting your writing. One concrete thing to glean from this interview was her distaste for adjectives. So pull out those descriptive words when you're revising to submit to the Massachusetts Review. Publishing with them seems to me also like an opportunity to really help you grow as a writer. They tend to send notes. They dive into poetry revisions, which is, as I mentioned during our conversation, a really rare experience. The Mass Review publishes nonfiction, fiction, poetry, hybrid writing, and I love that they have a category for that hybrid writing, and translation. And translation is open year-round for submissions. As of this episode release, they are closed for submissions until September 30th, except for submissions from authors who are Black, Indigenous, or people of color, which they accept year-round, and that's accepted by email or postal mail during their official submission closure periods. They pay a hundred US dollar honorarium for submissions that they publish. And remember from our interview that mail submissions may be read more quickly. So do consider going old school and using the post. I actually noticed they also will let you send those mail submissions in during their hiatus and then they read them for the next reading period. You can find all their guidelines for submissions up at massreview.org submission guidelines. And thanks again to episode sponsor Mom Egg Review. Don't forget to submit your poetry, fiction, creative prose, and art to Mom Egg Review's Mother Figures. That issue has a deadline of July 15th, and you can find information and guidelines at momeggreview.com submit. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. You can learn more about the work I do to help writers write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. When you're there, sign up for my writerly love letters sent every other Thursday and filled with support for your writing practice. Though note, I am on a writing hiatus and the letters will resume on August 12th. But sign up now so you're sure to get them. If this episode encouraged you to trust your writing or get rid of some adverbs and submit what you write to LitMags, I would love to hear all about it. You can tag me on social media. I'm at Rachel Thompson on Twitter or at Rachel Thompson Author on Instagram. And tell other luminous writers about this episode. You can do this by sending them to the podcast at rachelthompson.co slash podcast or searching for Write, Publish, and Shine wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to keep rising to the challenge and writing luminously. When we recorded back in 2019, Emily Wojcik spoke to me from the University of Massachusetts, located on Nanotuck land, and I was recording while a guest on the unceded traditional territories of the Kenyan Kehaka and the Anishinaabeg peoples in what is colonially known as Montreal, Quebec. 